0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
1: For now, we'd love to welcome you to Bite Into It. You're with Cassie and Vanessa this evening. Hi Cassie. Hi Vanessa. I'm really looking forward to this show because we are going to be speaking to Beck Spink from Code the Future um, about an award that they've recently won there, the Anzia Innovation Award, but also just about what
2: she's been doing to to earn that award, which oh, is pretty exciting. It looks like such an amazing project and anything that combines technology and children's education, I am 100% down for. So I'm so excited to be having a chat today. That is going to be excellent. And the other thing that is kind
1: of blowing my sweet little mind at the moment is that we have an international guest all the way from L.A. We'll be speaking to Jay Walt, who's an artist, a technician, and um, he's a an Academy Award winner, um, the technical Academy Awards, the ones that I really care about.
2: The ones that they don't show on the TV red carpet, they just brush over and you're like, no, I want this information, please. So you'll want to stay tuned because in the
1: second half of the show, we'll be speaking to him about Spontaneous Fantasia, a show that he'll be putting on at the Melbourne Planetarium. So do stay tuned for that. Before we get to our exciting interviews this week, there's been a lot happening in news. So one of the things we wanted to mention is, um, is Google. There's tons of Google news this week. Google is killing off, um, well, Alphabet is killing off the Google name, probably because every piece of news we get is, uh, is Google related these days
2: and they want us to move to Alphabet. See, so that, yeah, we thought that was weird when they first launched under a parent company, but it's like, ooh, wait, yeah, there's more. It took a while
1: to make a difference. So one of the ways that's going to, um, make a change is their enterprise software services. Previously, um, firms have talked about going Google, uh, but now they'll probably talk about the G Suite. Oh, dangerously close to the G spot.
2: <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. Well, you know, I guess it's
1: a play on the fact that, you know, management at companies is often referred to as the C Suite, all of your CEOs and CIOs and CTOs. But, uh, yeah, the G Suite, okay, we can live with that. What else have we got? The rebrand... Um, they're going to remove the expression, uh, Google for work from that. Yeah. I guess there's a few other things. Um, lots of other of their sub products are going to be losing the Google. So Google X will just be X. Google life sciences is changing its name to Verily. Verily. That's, um, it's a little bit of an old fashioned name. Google ventures will be GV. That's, that's very contemporary.
2: I like it. I don't know. I guess it's a really big change though, because Mm. if you think about it from a company perspective, Google's really been all about acquiring other businesses and bringing it under the Google umbrella. Mm. And so now to have these name changes, de-googling, de-googling, a part of me is a little bit skeptical about it just because you know, everyone's referring to how Google's got all our data and Google's watching over us. And it almost seems that, oh, if we change the names to different things, then we can infiltrate people's lives 100% and no one will really know it's us. I'm wondering if Google has some data that the rest of us don't have about how important it is to have your name come up very early in the
1: alphabet, <laughs> <laughs> and that's why, that's why the emphasis. Anyhow, I'm bored of that story now. We're going to move on. It's not tech enough for me. This one is is quite a lot more tech. Um, Google, Apple, Android, and Microsoft are quietly developing a new type of font. Now, this is fascinating because font technology hasn't actually changed that much in uh, in recent decades. So, you know, we had we had. Sorry, Cassie. Well, no, I'm
2: like, this is really exciting. But also for for noobs out there or perhaps myself, um, (laughs) maybe it could be filled in a little bit because, you know, all of us are used to different fonts or maybe have heard Helvetica to be the uh, standard to use, but I was doing a bit of reading and apparently with all the different fonts and typefaces and families out there, it actually requires a lot of downloading to be able to access... Different pages it does and
1: there are massive accessibility issues with font types and there are there are fonts that, that scale really well and work well for people who have different levels of um, ability with vision and also with um, with using uh, services that like read the web to you. so when they 're illustrating the story about variable fonts what 's really fascinating is that normally when you when you see um, visual reports on fonts They'll print out the alphabet and they'll show you the different versions of the letter A, for example, you know regular a, a at bold weight, a italicized, capitalized A's in all of those different formats, and then they'll go through all of the rest of the characters in this one what they've what they've pictured is like the A at a center of a three-dimensional cube, and then depending on which attributes you manipulate on that digital form. Then it'll push it in different uh, dimensions, 3D dimensions on the axes. And say so one direction might be bold, uh, another direction might be italicised. And then when you when you push that further out along the cube, you can imagine that is representing the scale of the font, so the, so the sizing. And these are things that you really love to do programmatically, because if you can do that, then um, you can take your you know you can separate I guess some of your content and and uh, from the code, and then you can do more design elements in the code as well so that you know code and design can really be powerful. and manipulating that on the fly for a lot of different devices is really significant just for readability and what have you. So when we talk about web uh, fonts that haven't really translated well to the web, there's, that's the often the sort of barriers that they're coming up against. So it's it's kind of exciting stuff, and to see that people are collaborating on this is is great because it means there's a chance of instead of many divergent standards, like maybe one standard that could be good. So variable fonts, if you're into your design, maybe have a look at that.
2: I mean, Google, Apple, Adobe, and Microsoft have all signed up for it. So that's a great start, and it is. It, be very exciting to see it launch everywhere. Another thing that was pretty exciting to see launch this weekend uh, in a cheeky segue uh, was Melbourne's world-class free Wi-Fi network. Now, if- How are we defining world-class these days, Cassie? Well, look, this is from the press release, world-class. <laughs> um, I would basically say can be accessed, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but the the good thing about this is basically in certain parts of the city, you might have noticed, uh, you might not have found any difference. You might have thought it was a scam, but it's actually um, based uh, with government backing. There is a Vic-free Wi-Fi service in the Melbourne CBD. Uh, more access points will be switched on in the upcoming months, and it will actually be ad-free and doesn't require personal logins or pop-up adverts. I am excited about that because at the moment
1: a lot of your options are based around public transport and they have both advertising and logging in.
2: Yeah which is which is quite quite frustrating I mean when when you are somewhere and you're logging in but you're giving up your email and then signing into different marketing staff or you know yeah. <laughs> what have you uh there will be a limit to how much you can download per day uh at the moment, it's 250 megabytes per device per day, which... So don't be downloading that email with the PDF. Yeah. That's no good. That's just going to be zip, all oh, gone. There was your Wi-Fi. You can't be doing that. But it does help in little increments. And I think what it will really help is that we've, we've talked on the show before, Vanessa, about how even the face of homelessness is quite different than what we actually assume and that a lot of people who are homeless or displaced in in Melbourne and in the city actually do have access to devices but perhaps have that added cost of data and, and that mm, type of stuff. Mm. So although it's being portrayed as a great thing for tourists and visitors, I'm also really excited about this because... Yeah, people of, experiencing homelessness could actually tap into this and access resources. Access, yeah, great yeah. resources and um, other things, things that connected. That, yeah. yeah, so that's that's another... Big plus. I
1: I like that you found a really nice warm part of what I found a slightly (laughs) disappointing press release. (laughs) Uh, Look, uh, it's been a big day for Google. Uh, They had a pixel hardware event. I mean, this is actually kind of yesterday in Australian time but it was effectively today that this this went down. So what they've done is um the Google CEO Sundar Pichai has um been speaking about a real shift from mobile to artificial intelligence and how that might affect um two-way conversation between us and and AIs and uh, a a real natural dialogue. So it's it's been fascinating because they've announced this at a at a, an event by a company called Pixel at their hardware event. So they've really teamed up and tried to demonstrate how um, the software from Google and the hardware from Pixel can work together and might be really changing the world that we live in. Uh, one of the exciting things was, was that they were showing off um, a new phone. So the mobile devices uh, carry the Pixel name and... They look very inspired by the iPhone in terms of form factor,
0: Mm. which
1: is interesting. Um, They're the successors to Google's Nexus 5X and 6P. They're both getting rebranded as Pixels and... They look like they're going to have a Snapdragon 821 quad core 2.15 gigahertz processor with 4 gigs of RAM and storage options starting at 32 gig or 128 gig. So for the specs nerds out there, we've, um, we've hit those marks. Um, it's powered by, uh, by a larger battery than they've had before. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it looks pretty sexy. It's what you'd want from a product launch, I guess the camera has a really high rating higher than the iphone 7 plus camera so they're they're really they're really going after the iphone and um and probably a great time to be releasing this when when some people are a bit frustrated with the move to the most recent um ios ios 10 so that's
2: good timing on their part I personally just moved over about a week ago and I'm incredibly to an iPhone, f- to an iPhone yeah. uh, and incredibly frustrated by this release. <laughs> <laughs> if I had this information, uh, perhaps things could have been a bit
1: different. One of the other cool things that they announced other than the phones was the first glimpse of Daydream at the... Um, Oh, it's not the first glimpse. I mean, we did see it at the Google Developer Conference in May, but the headset wasn't really available. So they've seen it um, in more detail now. Uh, and by they, I mean tech journalists in the States <laughs> at this event. But it, it's quite different from other other um, VR viewers in that they've gone with a, a soft fabrication around the headset and they've been really conscious that people who wear spectacles might need to wear those underneath a VR headset, which is... Pretty clever, I think um that was something I thought about when I looked at the Snapchat specs and then, oh, can we change those, those lenses? Uh, and the other, some of the other cool things were, um, a new Chromecast Ultra, uh, Talking about um, Google Wi Fi using mesh networking within the home, uh which is a, a big progression from things like Amazon Echo, uh, which is the major competitor in that home space. So really worth looking up the uh Google announcements at the Pixel Hardware event today. It's seven sixteen on R. We're gonna hear from Georgia Fields with We're Foolish Things and then we'll be back with Code the Future we're talking computers, we're talking technology. It's Cassie on the panel and Mike tonight because she's just so good. I'm pressing buttons, I'm
2: (laughs) speaking, I'm all over the place.
1: (laughs) And I'm Vanessa, just, you know, rocking the mic because that's all I can handle right now. A little bit of a slow iPad over here. (laughs) We would love to welcome to studio Code for the Future, oh sorry, Code the Future, co-founder and primary school vice principal, Beck Spink. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, you came to our attention, um, when your company won an innovation award and we'll get to that in a little while but Let's just begin with unpacking a little bit about what Code the Future is.
0: Yes, yeah, so Code the Future is a not-for-profit uh, organisation that connects uh, developers um, from the technology industry with uh, teachers in schools. Um, uh, and our core purpose, I suppose, is around just getting more kids learning how to code and exposing them to um, the wonders that is actually code. Mm. So as a
1: vice principal, you've presumably been in that school environment for a fair while now. Yes, uh, what was your experience in terms of, uh, the, the different skills that teachers were bringing to the classroom from a technology perspective?
0: Yeah, so I think, um, teachers, you know, are so great at using technology in the classroom, um, and are working really hard, um, to ex, you know, keep up with technology, um, and all the changes in, in technology, especially in education technology. Um, but, uh, you know, with all of our market research that we did at, at the initial um, startup up weekend and, and the accelerator that we've been involved in, um, we really noticed that there was quite a disconnect in teacher confidence um, and somewhat skill level. So we found that a lot of teachers were saying that they were really excited about it and really wanted to be able to teach it but maybe didn't have, you know, the, the little bit of oomph that they, you know, needed to get started by themselves. Mm. So and we ask so much of our teachers, don't we? Already, yes. <laughs> what about from the student perspective?
1: What did you know about, um, the students coming into your schools?
0: So I feel like a lot of our kids out there already are already teaching themselves, um, you know, with, you know, the ubiquitous access to information that the kids have these days. Um, they're, they're able to go out and find, um, you know, YouTube videos and tutorials and and different things and they're already starting to teach themselves or think about, um, you know, creating digital um, technologies um, but or might not know how to get started. So, mm. yeah, there's... Quite a, it's an interesting spread.
2: So I've just jumped on your website codefuture.org, uh, or you can, you can search for Code the Future. And what I find is really interesting and comes through, uh, comes across really clearly is that you're connecting developers, programmers, coders with teachers who perhaps are overworked and want to have that extra Coding projects done or or something extra to integrate into their classroom habits, but need a little bit of extra help. I think that's really amazing also from a developer's perspective because lots of times you do want to give back to the community. You want to be involved in a charity. You want to pass it on to the next generation, but you can't just really walk into a school or uh, know whether you'd be wanted or, or whether your skills are in need. But even just looking through there, how did you, how did you come up with this system where People seem to be submitting the projects that they actually want help on
0: yeah, so just to uh back to something that you said about the teachers um, you know and the confidence and the skill level that's definitely a huge part of it, but the thing too is that we actually have teachers who are really confident and love it and are providing opportunities with the kids, but it's more about um for them you know it's about the getting a developer in in the classroom is more about um, you know giving kids such a unique experience about having somebody that actually does this for a job in their classrooms, working alongside them. Um, In regards to getting the projects up online... Um, basically, we've it's just happened organically through um, we run meetups, you know, every few months. Um, we have a meetup group, so we've got quite a strong community there. Um, you know, we talk to schools. We, we're always trying to get out to conferences and, and just putting the message out there. Um, and teachers come along and they post a project or something that their kids are working on inside the classroom. And then the developer comes along and browses them. If there's one in their location and they can get the time to go in, then all they do is press volunteer and they're connected. It's That's really great. cool. I love that you're talking about how you've built a, a community
1: around this. Um, how big is your community at the moment and how many schools are, are being involved in your projects?
0: Yeah, so we have um, over 3,000 teachers signed up to our website.
2: Wow, amazing.
0: Um, and uh, I think at my last count there I was about oh i don't know 1700-ish developers um and that's uh growing fast which is really exciting um and we've had about 60 or so projects um gone live so some are still running so the very first project that was connected in January last year actually still runs to this day um, with the same teacher and the same developer so that's been such a long-term project um, and then other some other projects um, you know they might just run for six weeks so there's such great flexibility in regards to our volunteers and the needs of the teachers and the kids in the school. So I feel like I'd be very out of
1: touch with what a classroom looks like these days. It's been so long since I was in one. Is it
0: the norm that kids uh, can attend a class and all be in front of a computer? Uh, it depends on the school I suppose but more often than not these days from my experience um, whether it's a computer or a tablet there are, there is always some kind of technology generally um, uh, in schools yeah. and uh, occasionally I
1: feel like Hollywood would have me believe that looking at code is an inherently boring thing based on the way they choose to animate it and film it in really awful ways or recreate scenarios that never happen possibly until Mr Robot came along right so where you've been thinking about what you're going to do in these classrooms um in the beginning was there a a period of of thinking about how do we make this accessible
0: yeah and it it was like something that we really believe into is about changing that perception yeah so you're exactly right about that is what hollywood believes but um you know, we want to, you know, help our kids understand that that's actually not what a coder looks like or a programmer looks like or an app developer looks like. You can be one. And so we talk about, like, I know at my school, we talk, like, with that language, um, around it. So yeah, it's, um. Yeah, the see it to be it is, um, is becoming really common exactly. refrain in,
1: in coding schools. And to
0: have somebody in the classroom mm. doing it with you, you, you're breaking down that barrier straight away. What about for
2: teachers who might be listening who are in regional or remote areas? Is there still a chance for them to participate if they're not aware of any coders that, that might be living around them?
0: Yeah, completely. We've had projects connected in Castle Main and Bendigo, so they're still relatively close. But um, uh, really all it is, is if a teacher goes on and posts a pro- project in a remote or rural area, we will just work extra hard to try and find a developer that could be able to go out there so i think we're getting an idea about the the
1: scope the massive scope and the significance of your work can you tell us a bit now about the innovation award that you've just won
0: yeah so um a a few months ago now um my co-founder will egan he um was at the above all human conference and met somebody um who worked from the ansias and um, you know, he sent it to me and met her and then um, got in contact and they said, oh, you should have a go. And we just thought, OK, well, let's have a go. um, not expecting anything. So when we actually won, I remember at the table that night saying to Will that um, even if we got like a highly commended, that would be a win for me. Um and for what we're doing and what we believe in. So we never expected anything. So to win was just a complete shock. And how long has it taken you to build from the ground up to this point? Okay. So, oh, um, in, Will and I met at a startup weekend in November 2014. Um, and, uh, then our team grew. We brought on, um, a, a guy called John who helps us Um, get all of our developers he's got so many connections it's amazing so he's been able to um, you know build our developer base and scope Um, and then we've also brought on to other um, team members Gemma um, who's our designer and Nigel who um, looks after our website so he does a great job so we're really lucky that we've grown so quickly um, and with such a small team but a really hard-working effective team I'm just so
1: thrilled that we're able to speak to you about this project and I do encourage listeners out there to think about, you know, hooking up their schools with your fantastic Code the Future program. Thanks for speaking at speak. No problems. Thanks for having me. It's 7.31 on Triple R. We're going to listen to Shura with Touch and then we'll be back with Jay Walt straight from LA. We're pretty excited. We've just been joined in studio by Jay Walt who is the artist and technologist and designer and everything behind an exciting new event coming up at the Melbourne Planetarium. It's called Spontaneous Fantasia and we're going to hear more. We've also been joined by Warwick Lawrence who is the digital production designer at the Melbourne Planetarium. Thanks for joining us guys.
3: Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Vanessa and Cassie. Great to be here.
1: So Spontaneous Fantasia is a live musical visual experience, and it's going to be happening in the planetarium. When we first heard about this, it did make us think about uh, what we'd heard about in the 70s, which was these amazing uh, planetarium experiences with lasers and Pink Floyd and maybe a bit of pot. Uh I want to
3: know how close is that to this experience? <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because uh you can still go see laser shows with Pink Floyd uh, uh today really? but uh not not the uh, not in Melbourne. Um, no, but uh this is um, this is the 21st century version of of a laser show. It's it's done with um uh full dome digital video. So it's a video screen that uh surrounds your your vision—it it fills up your entire vision. You lean back in the chair and stare up at the domed ceiling, and uh, and it just um, surrounds you. You're inside of it. You think about like a theater in the round or something like that. This is that kind of a thing. You're in the center of the experience.
1: So that feels like something, um, that we're actually striving for in other parts of technology at the moment. VR is really full on in Melbourne at the moment. We've been seeing VR sure. experiences pop up in our film festivals, yeah, which is yeah. a new thing for us. And yet the struggle has been to create some sort of communal experience of, of art when, when you're in that. Uh, how do you think, um, it feels to be in, in your sort of creation versus a, a VR world?
3: Yeah, this is, um, well, <laughs> we're, Warwick and I were just talking about this. Actually, I've been involved in VR for some time. Uh, I was working on VR, um, uh, for Disney in the 90s. And, um, even back then, VR wasn't only headsets. That's kind of, That's the home version, well, back then it wasn't the home version but right now the home version of vr is headsets but there is theatrical vr which is to fill up a space with video and put an audience inside of it and that's what a planetarium does very well uh in the 30s it was only you know starball technology uh and uh then lasers came on you know in the 70s and now with full dome video um it's you know it's cg it's movies it's it's whatever you can imagine putting up there
2: cuz i guess that's something we don't really think about when we think about the planetarium as a space i mean we can surely remember many enjoyable visits there or it's mostly if it, there'll be a movie investigating space and then and then looking at the sky right. but having that completely immersive experience when you're making video how or when you're creating this whole thing how do you make sure that attention is drawn to the parts that that you want it to be drawn to, because people can really be be
3: doing anything. Right, right. Well, you, you once you realize that people can be doing, you know, looking in any direction, you you can embrace that. You can say like, no, you know, only look over here. But that's still thinking in terms of a movie, in terms of thinking like, you know, like oh, there's got to be a close up. Or now you look at this, now you look at that. Forget that. Think of it more like a three-ring circus. Think of it more like you know, seeing a a big stage production. You can um, you can attract people's attention one way or another, but you can also just keep it open and say, you know, here's something going on over here. Here's something also going on over there. What I'm going to be doing is is creating a world in front of people's. in in front of us in front of all of us i'm going to be experiencing it along with you i'll I'll create worlds that i haven't actually created before it's uh it's like an improvised animated movie there's really not a good word for it i'm still struggling (laughs) for a word for this kind of a thing but i get up on stage i draw and i start creating these worlds and uh let it take me where it takes me, and i I take everybody along with, so while I'm creating, maybe it's right in the front, but all around you is the stuff that I've created just minutes or seconds before, mm. and that's still there, and we're still inside of it, and it's it, it there's a real weird st- switch between having watched me create something, and then we come back to it, and it's like now it it seems a little more real now before it was like it was like a doodle or something like that, it was just sort of just came out, and it seemed very um. Uh, temporary or something but then to come back to it a couple of minutes later and go like oh that's still there and it, now it's part of this overall space I've had people come back and you know, tell me that like yeah there was this real perception of reality change when when, when things are, are there more it, it's about permanence and impermanence but you know the more that, that something's there for a longer time or we're all experiencing it's uh, it's it's more permanent. I'm, it's, this is starting to sound really arcane. <laughs> the I show is actually a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> it sounds pretty fantastic. I think we've put you in the in the awful position of of having you as an artist try and describe your work and, and and the experience of your work, which which is always quite tricky. But but Warwick's here and he's probably really well placed to talk about that
4: as well. Well, what I wanted to say about the planetarium. What I really love about the planetarium is as a, as a You know, people think of it as going, oh, I'm going to go watch something on a screen. But actually, when you go into a planetarium and the lights go down, it's very dark, and the show starts, the screen has disappeared. So unlike putting on a, you know, VR head-mounted display or or even going to the cinema, where you always know where the screen is, you have no perception of where the screen is. So it does become an incredibly immersive experience. And because you're lying back, and you're not in your usual comfortable position mm. at all. It's a very comfortable position. It's a very comfortable it's, position. It's a different comfortable position. But it, yeah. it, it's almost... Uh, it's, <laughs> I consider it almost like transcendental cinema where you kind of moved beyond any sort of sense of the screen. And when we actually bring animators to work on any of our shows, because we produce our own shows at the Planetarium as well, I'm always trying to say to them, don't think of this as a screen. Don't imagine it as a screen. What you have to imagine it is... An environment. What environment are you putting the audience in? And that's what we're working with. Yeah, like. So yeah. it's immersive spaces. It's spaces.
1: So I suspect that's why when we tried to write an introduction for you, Jay, what well, we we struggled so much because um, we didn't have enough time to read your CV. Uh, out a, as the, the intro, of my existence but is
3: trying to describe <laughs> it because when you see it, when people see it, they're mm. like, "I've always dreamed of being able to do this." It's just like it just hits people at every age group, you know, kids say, I want to be able to draw like you, or uh, you know, adults are just like, okay, this is some, like, People all over the world must be doing this because it's so obvious to do this. The and- only
1: thing I could relate it to immediately was um, having recently um, seen Google's Tilt Brush.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And Have you checked that out? As yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah. you have. Right. Um, so when we looked at your CV and we saw that you're a performer, you're an interactive designer, you're a filmmaker, you're a graphic artist and a composer, plus you've been hands-on in developing some of the technology to facilitate your vision. Yeah, yeah. Um. That kind of blows our minds because it it kind of makes sense why it's hard to describe because you seem to need so many skills to to bring something like this to life or you know maybe it, it just helps.
3: Yeah. Um, well, it's it, you know, yeah. I've, I've created my own system to be able to do this. It was something that I wanted to be able to do and it didn't really exist. That no, now Tilt Brush is catching up to me, but um uh, but the um uh. When you think about technology, it's, I think of it as something that's very fluid. It's something that isn't, you know, okay, here's, you know, here's type A and here's type B or whatever. It's, it's, we can choose to make it whatever we want it to be. And, uh, that's what, what you'll be seeing in my show is what I've chosen. And in a way, it's this big spectacle, but in a way, it's also this very personal kind of thing because I love, Computer graphics. I love animation. I love music. I love um, coding this stuff. I love getting underneath how to make moving images and how to make creatures dance and um, and playing around even with the the technology or even what you think of as far as how you're supposed to do animation or how you're mm. supposed to make an image. I, I I like to tweak that and kind of go no, you can do it a little bit differently here this way. Um, so you know once you get Kind of under the hood with technology you realize how, how all the different possibilities that are at our fingertips.
2: I think the term uh, "computer-generated puppetry," which I've used to describe, <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: uh, really is w- what you're bringing to life when you're describing it now. Having the sense of this puppeteer who's using digital imagery to to create a world, but also being the puppet master, but yeah. letting your creations kind of roam free. Yeah,
3: yeah. It's yeah, but you also think about, and, and I always keep the term animation too. Now we have this idea of what an animated cartoon is but if you think about you know 80 years ago or or when animated characters were new there is a whole and you can think of it in terms of the movie fantasia but there was a whole series called out of the inkwell where you'd see a hand draw a little character and then that character would pop off the page and and run amok in the real world the the term animation means bringing to life so this idea that a drawing could come to life was just a spectacular idea, and um, and you see that through the 30s and into the 40s, people will be expressing that uh, in in a lot of different ways. Now we're kind of jaded with what animation is. We're like, okay, I get it. You're a talking sponge. <laughs> Do something funny, you know, <laughs> you know, and 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 I really hope that what i'm doing is kind of recapturing that sense of just you know here's something i'm creating and now it's coming to life and, and now i'm controlling it and 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 it's sometimes getting out of control too
1: <laughs> so warwick you mentioned um the the challenges of getting uh, when you're collaborating with creatives in your space in the, the planetarium the the challenge of getting people to get off the screen um when jay walt first came to your attention uh did you think differently about how you needed to pitch a project or did it sort of happen the other way?
4: My first experience of, of, of seeing Jay Walt was um, seeing him about four years ago at Baton Rouge. And I'd already been working in planetariums for about seven years by that stage. And so we already were making a lot of shows. Um, but I'd never seen anyone do anything live the way this show was done and my jaw hit the floor and it was almost straight afterwards that night I think I, I sought him out and I said how do I get you to Australia <laughs> um, and I've seen him perform since then in Macau and as well as in, in Boulder and every time it just blows me away um, it's, it's completely different to the shows that we create, I mean obviously the shows that, that we created at Planetarium
1: I've seen some
4: fantastic ones there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, generally are going to be astronomy focus. I mean, there's the. It's interesting within the whole planetarium world that that's actually broadening out. I mean, the larger majority of shows and planetariums are still connected to museums and science centres. So there's a lot of astronomy, but artists are really now starting to explore the space as well. So uh, you'll have. People creating uh, full dome film, as we, as we actually call it for that, which mm. I've been we, we now do screenings with the Melbourne Film Festival, which have been doing for about the past seven years, which are very, becoming very popular. And uh, there's a few, or very few, he's uh, you know, th- the best in the world <laughs> doing doing the real time stuff. Um, so it's live in yeah. front of you, and it it really is amazing.
1: So, Jay what when you're, when you're conceptualizing at the very beginning, you know, you know the space you have to work with, and that's probably about it. And then you've maybe got the limitations of the software that you've created. Yeah. So that maybe decreases the limitations <laughs> on you somewhat.
3: Yeah, well, it depends. Sometimes I'm ex- inspired by a piece of music that I'll want to illustrate in some way. And other times I'll come up with a technique that I want to explore a little further, like, um, you know, like I'll... You know, like, oh, if I create this little dancing figure, what can I do with it? Or where can I put this kind of a thing in? Or if I'm drawing a landscape, what, you know, how do I, how do I show that, you know, to an audience and Mm. and get that kind of a thing? So, so these, those will be the germs of the ideas and then, and then trying to put it together into a context into a larger piece that's, that's fun and, and watchable for. So, you do, you,
1: do you think that you really lean on any particular part of your background in terms of when you plan and say there's going to be a narrative or it's going to be experiential in a way that something else is, or is it already completely unique when you're conceptualizing?
3: Boy, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's. I'm always trying to put it into. Into some sort of a structure and in, in, in I think of it kind of like a um I wanna I, I also want there to be a structure, but I want there to be a lot of freedom within it so I think about it like a jazz piece like you know the, like here's tension. a tension yeah 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 here, here's a song you know and and it has this particular chord changes or whatever but uh every time I perform it, it's gonna be a little bit different or I'm gonna add something to it or I'm gonna move this around change this around so even if you see me perform the same piece. You know, two nights in a row, you'll see something different. Mm. Or actually, sometimes <laughs> I've had um, I've had the system crash on me. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> we're not live yet, are we? <laughs> um, and uh, the um, and then I've had to start a piece over again. Or and and then people will see me do it a different way, and wow. they'll get that kind of aha. They'll be like, oh, now now it really is. They they kind of it really clicks in with them. They'll see the the. Variation that I'm doing within it, and uh,
1: oh, in concerts yeah. that's often the best bit when, yeah, when you right. get to see some flaws that that real <laughs> the reality of right, the experience. Right. Yeah. And
3: then yeah, and then uh, when I start thinking that my the the, the theme park background that I have starts kicking in and like okay how can I package up the accident you know so that it's a repeatable accident and everybody thinks that it's an accident but I like pull some <laughs> and I'm like no 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 let's, let's, it's, let's
2: not go there. it's the animator bringing it to life but actually having to start the whole program maybe you could just you know code it from scratch in front of people <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I,
3: you know I would love to do that <laughs> if I could find an entertaining way to do that <laughs> Yeah, that bug
1: testing is really underrated yeah,
3: no, of entertainment no. value. Watching people type is not—it's <laughs> not as thrilling as you might think. It's really not. <laughs> um,
1: so I, I love the idea that you, you talked about this this three D immersive um, experience. With lasers because lasers make everything better. But in t- in terms of the technology, where do the lasers come from? We're, we're described- not using
3: lasers for this. Oh, not, really? This yeah. is not a laser show. So this is digital projection. This is digital projection. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So lasers is one technology, and there's there's something really great about that because it's it's a, a great intense light that you get on there. But there is a limitation to mm-hmm. how what what kind of imagery and how um, how broad you can make images on yeah. there. This will fill up the entire screen with the uh, 4K. By four K uh, uh, image, um, so it's a very high resolution uh, image that just wraps around you. So we can, I can draw anything on there. So,
1: so is that coming from four projectors? Is that how, you,
3: two b- how many two, b- two, b- two, b- two b- projectors? Two projectors, projectors like each of which takes four uh, inputs. So we've got uh, eight eight separate PCs that are all generating a piece of the image that gets thrown up onto the uh, dome. Uh, so I've got. Uh, nine or ten computers all synchronized in parallel making this, this happen. Uh, so I've made, one of the challenges of getting into the dome is to be able to, to take this cluster of PCs and get them all to work, uh, simultaneously. Yeah. And so now I've made it so it's completely scalable. My show is resolution independent. So, uh, like when, um, uh, uh Warwick saw me perform in Macau um that was running on fifty computers.
0: Wow. <laughs> because it was
3: uh it, it had to fill up uh eight K of projection um times two because it was a three D thing. So it had a left eye and a right eye so wow. it had a lot of pixels to push out of a lot of PCs. And uh I was happy to discover that it worked. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess failure feels pretty big on that scale. <laughs> Look, uh it's it's absolutely fascinating what you're doing. I'm I'm sure that uh the theatre of the mind that is radio is not quite doing it justice right now. So I do implore people. I do implore people to go out and have a look at Spontaneous Fantasia uh online because they'll be able to they'll be able to find where it is at the Melbourne Planetarium. And that's gonna be Saturday, eighth of October. Uh it's one show only, I believe. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So this
4: tickets is are just, going fast though. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah you and really you, and to... you do have to book tickets because yeah. it's, it's we only have, we only see
1: 150. Oh my gosh. It is the premiere experience <laughs> of the month. Get in there, people. You really have to see this one. It's 754 on Triple R. We're going to hear a couple of messages. Uh, thank you so much, Jay Walton Warwick. And there was a 4chan news story this week, and I oh. I bring it to you because. It's a good news story for those of us who aren't as close with 4chan. Yeah, it's delicious.
2: Please <laughs> please continue. <laughs> um,
1: apparently, the the advent of ad blockers is having quite an adverse effect on the 4chan forum. So 4chan, uh, people might know it as an image board. So it's like an old school forum, but it's predominantly focused on the creation of memes and discussion forums, so different channels where people talk about different things. It's uh, incredibly uh lighthearted isn't quite the right word but it's it's not a serious forum in any way it's a social forum and uh they pride themselves on not being politically correct
2: yeah. And I, I do love a good meme, I think, as much as anyone. Uh, and I guess we can thank 4chan a little bit for some of the, the birth of the memes that we use today. But there has been a history of also quite offensive behavior, uh, attacking behavior, trolling behavior, uh, that sort of they stuff. They have
1: a bad reputation.
2: If you, they, if you look yeah.
1: online, it's pretty easy to find.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: but... The site's owner has recently posted a thread titled, Winter is Coming, mm-hmm. and it wasn't about Game of Thrones, which they've made some fantastic memes about. Instead, the message was that they're broke and that the options that he saw was to inundate users with ads or um, sell more 4chan passes, which is a premium feature. It's a bit like Reddit gold. Um, so... You know, it's just a, an invented sort of system to, to give value within the forum. Or to cut down on file size limits and begin shutting down whole sections of the functionality of the site. Uh, they said it could keep running on a quite low level, but, um, things would certainly have to change. Uh, and this is mostly because of, um, ad blockers they're saying that, uh, it's made a big difference to uh, how the the really large user base of 4chan they used to get a lot of revenue out of people just hitting the site, and and now that so many people are using ad blockers because ads really slow down the use of the website, for example, and also a lot of the ads on 4chan are pretty distasteful. They're they're, mm. they're things that you know you wouldn't advertise elsewhere.
2: Uh, they're struggling anyhow. Interesting news. I, I don't know, I just I think it's an interesting point, and when you when you think about the inventor of the pop up ad coming out and saying that he was sorry for the way that he's now monetized the web <laughs> because of it, uh it all seems to be making sense with the maybe inevitable death of 4chan. but Martin Schre- Kelly. Uh, the big pharma guy that everyone hates for hacking up the price of that medicine has offered to perhaps uh, join the board of directors. So maybe we'll see its return. With friends like these, <laughs> who needs, yeah. Events. Yes, so we have some great stuff coming up soon. Uh, on Monday, 17th October at Melbourne Geek Night, we've got Chatbots are so hot right now, uh, which is a whole session about chatbots, how they work, how you can build one, why they're so useful, um, and you can find more about that at meetup.com, but that's going to be held at Loop Bar.
1: Yeah, Melbourne Geek Night on the 17th of October. Yeah. Uh, there's also upcoming a uh, three-day, 72-hour make-a-thon, and it's for assistive technology. Now, what could I possibly mean? I mean, when you read those great news articles about how somebody has 3D printed um, a part of a body to help someone who's differently abled... This is exactly the sort of uh, assistive technology that these guys are talking about. So what the event is about is Swinburne University of Technology at the Hawthorne campus uh, has an advanced manufacturing and design centre and they've decided to run this 72 hour makethon to really match up makers and problem solvers uh, with people who have challenges in this space so anyone who might have personal challenges or challenges representing challenges of a, of a whole community can come in and um, try and make some things we've gone a little over time it's time to say thank you for tuning in tonight thanks to our guests beck spink and jay walt and warwick lawrence from the planetarium we've been bite into it do stay tuned for the international pop underground up next won't you